0: I think this is a good day to fly away. (laughs) Nice view. Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer and during that time we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that You are in control of all things. You hold the world in Your hand. You've already given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we continue to live in the devil's world, in enemy territory. In order to survive, we have to know what's going on. But You want us not only to survive, but indeed to be overcomers. So we are here to grow in strength and knowledge and grace of what You would have us do while we're here left on planet Earth. So we pray that You will help us to concentrate and focus and let Your Word sink deep into our souls, into our long-term memory so that we can glorify You by reflecting Your glory. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and open to Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 2, we're going to press on starting with verse number 10. Rahab the harlot, which is also in the line of Christ, has harbored two spies. The spies are on a mission from God. They have crossed the Jordan on a reconnaissance mission, and now their lives are in danger. Rahab protected them. She lied to the king's men. Sent them another way. And now she's telling them why she believes in the God of Israel. She believes because of evidence. Because of facts. That's why we believe, by the way. We don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because our mama and daddy did. And we don't believe because faith is trusting something that can't be really understood quite the contrary. The evidence and the facts is why we believe, and it's why Rahab believed, and this is what we see in verse 10 of Joshua chapter 2. For we have heard, this is Rahab speaking, by the way, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before... before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. So they had heard about the crossing of the Red Sea, but also they heard about the utter defeat of two kings, the Amorites, They were on the east side of the Jordan. Most people haven't heard about this, but in the ancient day, the word still got around. And so, this is one reason that Rahab believed in the God of Israel because the God of Israel did things to kings and nations that that only God can do. And so, we're going to Look at this a little closer if you take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 21. I have to go back towards the front of the Bible. Numbers 21, excuse me. Verse twenty one. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, King of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land, we will not turn off off into the field of vineyard, we will not drink the water from the wells, we will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. Now this sounds like a reasonable request. They had to pass through this area. And so they were saying, we're not going to eat any of the food. We're not going to drink anything from your wells. This was over a million people, so they can drink a lot of water and eat a lot of food just in passing through. So they said, we're not going to do all of that. All we want is permission to pass through your land. Well, what does Og have to say here? I mean, Sihon. Verse 23, but Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sihon gathered all the people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. So we have already uh, the animosity you probably even could call it anti-Semitism that was uh, against Israel. I hope that you can see this. I don't know how well it will show up. <coughs> but You get an idea anyway. This is the Dead Sea, the Jordan, Sea of Galilee up here. Now, they were still under Moses' command when this took place. And so they're moving up from the wilderness down in this area. And they come up, and here is Jahaz. And they send messengers. Uh, Jahaz' hometown here is Heshbon. uh, And... They say, we just want to pass through. He says, not only does he not allow it, he comes down and he has a conflict with them here in Jahaz. And we'll see what happened here. Verse 24. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to, uh, to Jabok, as far as the sons of Ammon. For well, the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. And if we go and it tells a little bit more about, <coughs> excuse me, them taking him, but they actually utterly destroyed him. Now if you drop down to verse 31, thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. I might say something here. It has always been the case, When a country is attacked, when people are attacked, and they conquer, they win the battle, they take over the land, and they don't give it back. Does this kind of ring a bell with modern-day Israel? Israel became a a nation May 14, 1948, and all they wanted to do was be left alone. They had no peace. The day after they declared independence... Five Arab nations invaded them. And what happened? Same thing that happened to Sihon. They were utterly defeated. And so what happens is Israel takes over the land, but over a period of time, uh, lo and behold, now they say the, the land belongs to the Palestinians. And uh, well, I, don't, I, I could get go on and on about what, what happened. Let me just suffice it to say this. It's Israel's land. In fact, not just that little sliver of land that you see on your map as Israel today. That whole portion from the from the Mediterranean to the river Euphrates and from down there the, from the Nile all the way up to uh, above the Golan Heights, all that whole big area is Israel. Why? Because God gave it to them. And he, one other caveat here. The Bible says, Cursed is he who divides my land. I just thought I'd throw that out. Um, verse 31. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured it, his villages, and dispossessed the Amorites who lived there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people to battle at Andrei. Verse 34, But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. Which means he utterly destroyed them. So they killed him and his sons and all the people, until there was no remnant left him, and they possessed his land. Now here's here again is the map. Oop, well, I guess the map was up. So here is, they, they, they dispense with Sihon here, and they move up to Shittim. This is where they actually were camped before they move up and are going across the Jordan. So they go up this area to Jazer here, and they go all the way up into uh, Bashan. And King Og, which is up here, lives in a town called Ashtaroth. Does that tell you anything? That's a pagan image. And so they go, he goes down and meets them here and they're thoroughly defeated. So all this land was, was conquered even before they start to go across the Jordan. And here is Jericho. This is where Rahab lived. And she heard about all these things that went on. She heard about what happened in Egypt. She heard about these things. And now we want to go to another uh, portion of Scripture to elaborate on this a little bit more before we press on. So, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 2. The next book. Deuteronomy Chapter two. Uh this 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 is giving the same account. Let's start with verse nineteen. Deuteronomy two nineteen. I just want you to see something here. And when you come opposite the son of Ammon Do not harass them, nor provoke them. For I will not give you any of the land of the sands of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. It is also regarded as the land of the Raphaim. Underline that. We're going to see that. This has to do with giants living in the land. For the Raphaim formerly lived in it, but the Amorites called them Zamzumim. Now drop down to verse 24. Rise, set out, and pass through the valley of Ammon. Look, I have given Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand, and begin to take possession of it, and so forth. It goes, and it's saying, it gives you a little more detail there. You can read it for yourself if you want to see more, but I want to drop down to verse 32. Then Sihon, with all his people, came out to meet us in the battle of Jahaz, and the Lord our God delivered him over to us, And we defeated him with his sons and all his people. Verse 34. So we captured all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. We left no survivors. We took only the animals as our booty and the spoil of the cities which we had captured. I want you to put a circle around that because I'm going to comment on it in just a moment. Now now go up to chapter 3, verse 1. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, came out to meet us in the battle at Andrei. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all of his people and his land into your hand, and you shall... Do to him just as you did to Sihon, King of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon, verse three. Verse three and four. Look at these. So the Lord our God delivered Og, also, King of Bashan, with all his people into our hand, and we smote them until no survivors were left. And we captured all the cities at that time that were uh, there was not a city which we did not take from them 60 cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars besides a great many unwalled towns. Verse 6, circle verse 6. And we utterly destroy them as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, Utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. There are some people who have problem with this. Maybe you are one of them. Because they think, how can a God of love do such a thing? And one thing that they are discounting is that... It's true that God is a God of love, but He's also a God of justice. That's the part that they leave out. And you have to be prepared when someone alleges that we worship a God that is not really loving, but He is a monster. That He would go into cities and wipe out men, women, and children. I saw... Debate between Dave Hunt and a Muslim one time, and they started talking about terrorism. And the Mormon, I mean the uh, the Muslim, pointed his finger at Dave Hunt and says, "Your God is no different than ours." And then Allah, and Dave said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "In your Bible." And he went to these verses. He says, "Look how he wiped out men, women, and children." How is that any different from terrorism? Can you answer that? The difference is terrorism kills innocent people indiscriminately. God wipes out cities for a purpose, and it's not indiscriminate. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. We get a hint of God's righteousness when he, execute, when he executes judgment on pagan, wicked, despicable people. Genesis chapter 15 verse 13. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Where is he talking about? Egypt. This is prophecy of what was going to happen. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. He was going to die in the old age, a peaceful death. You shall be buried at a good old age. Verse 16. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here. Now underline this part. For the iniquity of the Amorites, Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorites at that point had not reached reached that point of complete degeneracy that would allow God's righteousness to act. God just doesn't go here or there indiscriminately and wipe out people. He gives them a chance. And rather than turn to the true God, they got worse and worse. Make no mistake, the land of Canaan was inhabited by the most evil people you can imagine. They were into idolatry, idolatry. Uh, they had pagan prostitutes, temple prostitutes. They had human sacrifice. They had, you name it, and it was exceedingly evil. And God waited until it reached the saturation point, and that's when the children of Israel came, and they went to the king of Sihon, and they went to... Ah, Now, that's on the east side of the Jordan. It wasn't just in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was on the west side. But that whole area was exceedingly corrupt. So God doesn't do this annihilation of the people indiscriminately. So the Israelites couldn't even go into the land until that point had taken place. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 6, it says, And we utterly destroyed them, and we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying men, women, and children. Now here's a few points that I'm going to give you on on this that I think might be helpful to you. God did not give them the land and enable them to conquer these uh, pagans because of any righteousness on their part. Boy they were a bunch of complaining crybabies. So they didn't God didn't give it to them because of anything good on their part. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse four, God is explaining this point to them. The Israelites are a special people because they are God's covenanted people. But it doesn't mean that they are superior to anyone or that they're better than anyone, or less sinful or more righteous, quite the opposite. Deuteronomy 9.4 Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. Underline, that's the important part. He's telling you why he was doing it. It was because of the wickedness of those nations that the Jews were going to dispossess them. Verse 5, It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which he swore The Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a solemn promise. He was going to give the Israelites, His people, this land. And because of that promise, plus the wickedness of these people, that God righteously wiped out these people, judged them, and the Jews got the land. wasn't anything on their part. Go to Deuteronomy 7 now. The point I'm going to make here is that the pagans persisted in their hatred of God. The first point was that the Israel, the, God didn't give the Israelites the land because of anything good on their part. Now the second point in God being justified in doing what He did is because He gave these pagans a chance. We saw that in Genesis uh, chapter 5. Uh, excuse me, chapter 15, that he waited until the iniquity of the Amorites were full, gave them time to turn, but they never did. They continued to hate him. Now, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 10, but, and I, in context it's talking about God, but God repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face and they hated the God of the Israelites. And the third point with regards to God being justified is that there was the moral issue. The Mosaic law forbid the Israelites to intermarry with pagans. Why did He do that? Was he racist of course not the reason he did it was because if they intermarried with pagans what would happen is their immorality idolatry and false worship would rub off it would they would be impacted by that and they would turn the people's hearts from the true and living God and that's it's think of it this way what was happening on earth and that part of the land in that part of the what we see as the Middle East was like a cancer. And God was going to give them this beautiful, wonderful land, flowing with milk and honey, all oh, this great land. But it had a problem. This cancer was there. And God had to eradicate the cancer so it wouldn't affect his children. And what happens if you get nearly all the cancer, but you just have a little bit left? What happens? Potential for it to grow, isn't it? So that's the third point. They were a moral threat to the Israelites. And even one of them, even a child left alive, had the potential of introducing an idolatry and immorality which would spread rapidly among the Israelites and bring about the destruction of God's own people. God was doing it to protect his people. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 17. Deuteronomy 20:17. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now, verse 18, put, this is what you, you want to note this. In order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. That's another reason why he wiped them out to us to protect his own people. Now go to Numbers chapter 33. What would happen if they didn't do that? See, this is not an easy thing to do is to wipe out men, women, and children. But God was righteous in doing it, he was just, and he did it to protect his people. He had already given them a chance to to turn to him, and they continually rejected him. So, what would happen if they didn't do it? Numbers chapter thirty-three, verse fifty-five. I wait till I hear, don't hear pages rattling. By the way, those pages rattling are music to my ears. Verse 55, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land in which you live. And it shall come about that as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. (laughs) Does God mean business? There's no there's no negotiation here. He said I told you to do it. Now do it. If you don't do it, pricks in your eyes. Have you ever had just a little speck in your eye? Just, is is that not a bother? I mean, I, just, I don't know why this flashed in my mind. I was thinking about when I was a boy, I did not get along with my sister. She could she could get me faster than anyone or anything. And I was already warned severely that I shall never touch a hair on her head. I could not hit her, touch her, choke her, spit on her, <laughs> curse her. I couldn't do any of these things. And so I was pretty exasperated one day when she got in my face after we had a tiff and would say... Temper, 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 dude, just like right in my face. And I just nearly exploded, and I went out the door, and we had a big pane glass in the door. No crossbees or anything. Wham! I slammed that door, and it shattered. And guess what I got in my eye? The Lord was trying to teach me a lesson. You lose your tempers, you get a prick in your eye. A little pe. Well, it felt. If it's little bitty, how big does it feel? Like the size of a basketball. Anyway, that was not a good day for me. Not only did I have the eye problem. When my dad got home, I had a bigger problem. (laughs) So what I'm showing you is this. This is not good news. This God is very serious about them doing what He says. He's not backing away. He says he's just and righteous in doing it. It's for your sake, and you better do it. Now, in Joshua chapter 23, let's go back to Joshua, only to chapter 23 for a moment. Joshua 23, chapter 23, verse 12. Now, this is another warning He's given. Joshua twenty three twelve, For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you... Now, does that tell you something already? What does that tell you? They didn't do what He said. They did not eradicate this cancer. So if they go back, Cling to the rest of these nations which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. (laughs) is that a stern warning? When God tells us to do something, does He mean it? I think so. I think it would have been to their benefit if they would have just obeyed Him, even though it might have been a hard thing to do. Now, do you see how the annihilation of these desperately wicked people who were a threat to his own people is different than the terrorism of Muslims indiscriminately killing and maiming innocent people. So, one other factor that we might remember is that when they were killing those children, which I think for any rational person would be hard to do, but they had to trust God that this is what they were supposed to do and it was the right thing to do. These children, if they had not reached the age of God consciousness, would be saved. They would wind up in heaven rather than growing up in a decadent society, probably winding up being unbelievers and spending eternity in hell. God knows what He's doing, And so I thought I would just go through this because there are some people that you may run into from time to time that have a real problem with God exerting this kind of power and this type of activity on people because they can't associate, they don't see God as a God of not only love, which He is, but He's also a God of justice. And these people got exactly what they deserve, and they got it at exactly the right time from exactly the right people at exactly the right place. So don't ever equivocate when someone tries to impugn the character of God. Everything he does is just and righteous and perfect. It was a loving thing to do. Had he not done it, he would have compromised His perfect love towards the Jews. It was the loving thing to do for them. Had He not done it, they wouldn't have had a chance. They would have turned against Him and then His justice would have had to turn on them. Okay, let's get back to Joshua now. I just thought I'd cover that before we pressed on. Were we, we were in Deuteronomy a while ago. Uh, one more verse. and then We're still going to be in Deuteronomy, I mean in uh, Joshua, but I want you to show in Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 11 to show you how these were fortified cities, walls, they had bars, they had all these things. I'm talking about Iron bars, not the kind you go to get a drink in. Well, they probably had those too. (laughs) They had every kind of bar you can think of. But I want you to see this. Verse 11 of Deuteronomy 3. For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Raphaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in... Rabbi of the sons of Ammon, its length was nine cubits and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. Now that means that it was 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. Og had to be a big dude. 13 and a half feet long, six foot wide. What's that guy down in Mexico that weighed 1,000 pounds? They had to get a crane to put him in the truck to haul him somewhere. I think Og was maybe about his size or bigger. Anyway, I just want to just, They conquered these people. And somebody that had a bed that big probably thought, who can stand against us? They were giants. We'll see more about giants as we continue. Now, let's go back to Joshua chapter 2. All that we got, by the way, from verse 10 in Joshua chapter 2. I mean, we could fly right through this and you could brag to your friends, oh yeah, we got Joshua, we got that covered. No, you don't have anything. You have to slow down and see what's really there to get the golden nuggets, to get the things where you can make the connection. So I don't want to hear anybody, but he goes so slow. By the way, I did not heard anybody say that. At least not to me. <laughs> Verse 11. And when we heard it, this is talking about what happened to Og and Sihon. This is uh, Rahab speaking. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is a woman in a pagan city with no believing friends, idol worshipers, and did not receive the verbal gospel unless she came to that conclusion. Remember when we went over that? She could tell by the creation itself, just like in Romans 1. It says that anyone who reaches an age where they can comprehend that this earth, the mountains, the stars, the oceans and so forth, were not made by man. She, she knew that it had to be some creator, some god that did this. And when she heard of what happened in Egypt, she heard what happened to Sihon and Og and all the things that had happened, she connected, oh, okay, the one that created the earth is the same one that is the God of Israel. She made that connection. And by the way, in Romans chapter 1, it says those who refuse to believe that it was God that created what they see, the earth as a creation, are without excuse. You know what that means? It means when you're talking to someone who says, well, I don't believe in God, I don't believe God created the earth and all that kind of garbage, you can know that they know that that ain't so. They're without excuse. They have to know. The reason that they are alleging that God didn't do it is because they're trying to be unaccountable to God. And the only way they know to do that is to say, well, there is no God. Ha-ha. All oxen free. Not hardly. Uh, Verse 11. So, uh, we we just covered verse 11. Uh, There's no doubt that this Ex-pagan prostitute was a believer. Verse 12, Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. Now, I want you to underline kindly in both of those uh, two times in that verse. Kindly. It's a very impressive word. The word in Hebrew is chesed, the C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed, and it means loving kindness, and it has some qualities to it. It means steadfast love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, goodness, and devotion. According to Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary of the Old Testament, we have a quote from him with regards to this word. By the the way, this word is used 250 times in the Old Testament. This is Vine's quote. He says, quote, In general, one may identify three basic meanings of the word which always interact. In other words, this loving kindness, this cussed, always has three parts to it, three things that interact. The first one is strength. The second one is steadfastness. And the third one is love. Any time you see this word "kessed," all three of those aspects come into play. Continuing the quote, any understanding of the word that fails to suggest all three inevitably loses some of the richness. And then he explains, love by itself easily becomes sentimentalized or universalized apart from the covenant. We're going to see that the other part has to do with a covenant, a promise. Yet strength or steadfastness suggests only the fulfillment of a legal or other obligation. So it's love, all right, it's based on love, but not a sentimentality. And it's not just based on a covenant or a promise or a legal thing. It contains both of those. He goes on to say... The association of Kessid with covenant, covenant like a promise, is from being misunderstood as mere providence of our Lord for all creatures. It applies primarily to God, to God's particular love of His chosen and covenanted people. In other words, this isn't just to animals, and it's not to all people, primarily in the Old Testament, it is referring to his covenanted people, which are the Israelites. We call them Jews. Covenant also stresses the, recipro- the recipro- reciprocity of the relationship. In other words, this, because God is loving, he has loving kindness, steadfastness, and so forth towards, towards his people, his people would respond in obedience and, and, and faithfulness back to Him. That's the way it's supposed to work. But it will not ultimately be abandoned by God even when the human partner is unfaithful and must be disciplined. An, an example is Isaiah chapter 54, verse 8 through 10. So, it means that God is faithful to His people. He has this love this uh, steadfastness, it, it's a covenanted type love. It's not based on sentimentality and it's not based on just the law. It has all those aspects to it and it's mainly towards a people who he has made a promise to. So you have that underlined twice there. Now verse thir- uh, 13, Oh no, verse, verse 12. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you. All right, that's where we just went. go to verse 13. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Why was she saying this? Because she knew that the Israelites were about to cross the river and they were going to go and exterminate those who were in the city of Jericho. And she is saying... Just like you make a deal, not a deal, you make a contract with your God. He's going to do certain things for you, and then you do certain things for Him. This is what I'm doing. I'm making a covenant. I'm making a contract with you. So if I did this kindness to you, I saved your bacon. Now, in reciprocity, it's time for you to save ours. And this is going to be a covenant type of kindness. And so she's giving the terms, essentially, of what's going to happen in verse 14 so the men said to her our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you so they're saying okay we'll we'll go along with this deal we're, we're going to deal kindly with you what's that kindly same word there Kiss it we're going to, uh, your lives are going to be spared but he doesn't have a a provision in there. He says, if you do not tell this business of ours. In other words, he's saying, if you spill the beans, if you go to your king and said, I make a deal with the Israelites, that they're going to spare our lives, then what could the king do? He could arrange his forces in such a way and set a trap for them because he knew that they were going to have special treatment to this house of Rahab. So he says, if you don't spill the beans, then we'll, we'll, we'll shake hands. We'll, we'll do the deal. And then verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through a window for her house was only on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. That means return home. They give up, those that are chasing them, looking for them. Then afterwards you may go on your way. And the men said to her, We shall be free from the oath to you which you have made us swear, unless we come into the land, you tie this cord a scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourself into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. So he's giving some more provisions to this. He's saying that you, we're going to be free from this oath if you don't comply with these things also. What do they have to do? She had to take a, th- this, by the way, this isn't a thread. This is a rope, a scarlet rope, a red rope. And he says, this is what you have to do if you want us to save your bacon. You've got to have a red rope hanging out of your window so when the troops come in and they're, they're besieging the city, that they'll say, okay, they're going to be warned. You don't touch anybody in that house where the red rope is. But if your family and friends are out scattered out, then they're not in the house then we're going to be free of this oath. In other words, if they're killed, don't look at us and blame us. He's just setting the the, the tone, the rules of the deal. Verse 19, And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the streets, his blood shall be on his head. That means he's going to be responsible for his own death. And we shall be free, free of that oath. Don't blame us. But anyone who is with you in the house his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. In other words, if if the soldiers, when they're besieging the city, if they go in and hurt someone in their house, then the blood is going to be on them. You know what that means? They'd lose their life if someone hurts them and they've done their part. Verse 20 But if you tell this business of ours, <laughs> okay. <laughs> But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. Remember this second time she says that. And then, and she said, According to your words, so be it. So he, so she sent them away. And they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now I'm going to stop there for just a minute make a few comments before we close. First of all, This is just setting the terms of the agreement. And look at verse 18. Verse 18, the part that says, And gather yourself into your house. Underline that. Into your house. And your father and your mother and your brothers and all of your fathers and households. So they had to be inside the house to be safe. This is in Joshua chapter 2, verse 18. There's just a phrase I'm taking out of verse 18 because I want to make a point here. And gather to yourself into the house. Be sure you underline that. Start. Your father and your mother and your brothers and all of your father's household. So anyone inside the house would what? Be saved, they be delivered. Noah and his family had to be where? Inside the ark to be saved are delivered. That's Genesis seven sixteen, by the way. The Israelites had to be inside the house to be saved from the death angel. Remember the tenth plague? That's in Exodus chapter twelve, verse twenty three. How about us? We have to be in Christ. We have to be in Christ to be dis- delivered from the lake of fire. Did we not? Here's a verse for you. Two verses that would substantiate, uh, substantiate that. First is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ if you have a king james version mark through everything that comes after in christ cuz that's not there shouldn't be there that is. John chapter 10 verse 9 I am the door if anyone enters through me he shall be saved you got to go through the door to get into the house Jesus Christ is the door to be in Christ it's interesting that the rope that that Rahab used to lower the spies down was red. You knew I was going there, didn't you? Huh? You think I'd leave that alone? By the way, um, here is just an artist's conception of what that might have looked like, letting, letting them down. It was a red rope. We, we, we had already looked at maybe she was in the rope-making business. Maybe she had already stopped her previous profession. Now, what about this red rope? Just a few points before we end here. What What, what color was the the blood that was put over the doorposts and the lentils when they went into the house, huh? It was red, was it not? And what what did that portray? Hmm? Christ's sacrificial atonement on our behalf. What it essentially is speaking of is the blood of Christ blood of Christ is red. The blood of Christ speaks of His sacrifice on our part. And the sacrifice, the penalty was spiritual death, which He underwent on Golgotha after God had darkened the earth supernaturally. And He poured out our sins upon Him. The, the, the blood of Christ... Is a term that links the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament that was a prefigure of what Christ was going to do on the cross. And so when they saw not just a rope, but the red rope was a sign of the blood of Christ. And anybody that is in that house is under the blood of Christ and they are safe. Isn't the Bible rich? God wants us to read this and to absorb it and to meditate on it, so it goes into our soul. We have nothing to fear. I don't know what's going to happen to this country if we continue the course that we're on, but it, look, it, it doesn't look very rosy. Things could get well; they could get so out of sorts that uh, we don't even couldn't even recognize our old way of living. But there's one thing that you can absolutely depend on. We are under the blood of Christ. We have a red rope hanging. Nothing can touch us, nothing can take away our eternal salvation. I'm so thankful that the Bible is rich. I've got two verses. And then next time we'll start on chapter 3. I'll just very quickly, verse 22 through 24. That ends chapter 2. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. They were already defeated in their souls. They were frightened out of their gourd. They had hit the panic button even before the Israelites had crossed the river. I can't wait. I, I spent I've, most of my time yesterday, which was all day long, I was doing chapter 3. Uh, and wonderful things in chapter 3... Because they're actually going to finally cross the river. I know some of you won't believe that we'll get to the crossing. We're going to get there. But you're going to have to wait. The Israelites moved from Shittim six miles up to the Jordan River. And guess what they had to do? Wait!
1: Three days.
0: And guess what they were looking at? For three days. A river that was impossible to cross. So if they can wait, we can wait. And we'll all benefit from it. I'd like everyone to please bow your heads and close your eyes. This portion of this service is is for someone who is also frightened. Just like the Canaanites were frightened. They're afraid of death. They don't know what's going to happen after they die. And that's a shame because the Bible says that you can know that you have eternal life. And the only condition of knowing is if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That He is the Son of God, that He went to the cross, He was crucified, He died, He was buried, and then rose again. And now, He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. It's not of works lest any man should boast. It's all about Jesus Christ and His work. And in a moment of time, this time, silently in your own soul, because God knows what you're thinking, You can say, this is the time that I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ and His work on my behalf. And in that moment, you are born again. You become a royal family member. A son or daughter of the Most High. And you will always be. You do not earn it. You do not deserve it. It's all because of our Magnificent God and His grace. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. It's all about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Father, we are so thankful for your mighty word and how it sinks deep into our soul and it goes places that nothing else, nothing or no one can go. We pray that we will have the confidence and courage and the faith that this prostitute in a pagan land had and act upon that faith and continue to grow in grace and knowledge so that we can glorify You. And we pray this in Christ's Most High and Holy Name. Amen.